0: tell you that just to to let you know to be careful so that you don't spill grape juice all over your white sweater or your white shirt and it's no longer a white shirt okay. So um, let's let's go to the Lord and read his word in chapter 10 of Acts we'll begin reading in verse 34 this is the word of the Lord so Peter opened his mouth and said truly I understand that God shows no partiality But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, is what the phrase said. I shouldn't have read that, but I did. It might not be in your Bible, but that's what it says. Uh, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the the way you continue to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world, Lord, even to us here in Annapolis. Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts this morning, that we would learn and grow from you. I pray that you would transform us. Father, I pray that where we have built up walls in our own heart, Lord, that we would keep others, Father, out of your church or out of your table, away from your table that you have called to your table. I pray, Lord. That, that you would break down those walls and tear, tear down the scales from our eyes. Father, would you do this for your glory and for our good? And Father, I pray for this one that would preach your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would cause me to decrease and you to increase. For Lord, this is your table, this is your time, this is your church. And I pray that you'll be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. The, um, the word continues to spread. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus told the disciples, He said, "You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you, be, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth gets opened up in this passage. It's a glorious time of God tearing down walls and inviting others. To the table of the Lord uh, I don't know about you but I like to build things um, I like to to build houses I like to rebuild engines uh, I like to build furniture at the present time I do not have a garage so my wood shop workshop is stacked in boxes and in the corner of a, of a tiny storage shed and under the stairs anywhere I can fit it uh, but I, when I have a garage I like to set it up and build things I build bookshelves I build I build tables, um, I build cookbook shelves. What else do I build? I build desks, I build changing tables for grandchildren. I I like to build things. It's a fun thing for me to to shape the wood and to sand the wood and to stain the wood. I have an idea of what I want it to be before I ever start. And and then I I, I shape it to to the place where it, it, it is able to serve that purpose. The creator of the table does that with his table. It's his table and he can create it however he wants to. And because he owns it, he continues to use it for that purpose. One of the last things I, I built was a, um, a game table, a coffee table. It's in our living room. Uh, it's uh, about uh, 30 inches wide and about 40 inches long. Uh, it's made out of birch and redwood. It's stained a bit of a walnut color in places and a red oak cover other pla- color in other places. It's got a, a, a shelf underneath it for, uh, for wicker baskets, and there's five wicker baskets that you can pull out, and each one of those wicker baskets will hold uh, a, a, a Monopoly game board and all the pieces that go with it. So there's backgammon games in some of them, Monopoly games, Sorry, uh, Trouble, Scrabble, all sorts of fun games. And then there's also a shelf that's four, or, or a, a drawer that's 40 inches wide, uh, eight inches deep, that will hold all sorts of things, from from coasters to uh, DVDs to, I mean, you name it, all sorts of stuff goes in there. Uh, It's strong enough that you could put a car on it because they overbuild things, sadly. Um, Don't put a car on it, but you could if you wanted to. And it, it serves the purpose which I built it. It continues to serve that purpose because I own it. Now, if somebody else owned the table, they could do whatever they want to with it. They could chop it up and burn it if that's what they want to do, but they don't. And I'm not going to let someone like that have it. But it's, um, it's, it's my table, and that's, that's what we do with it, because the owner of the table determines its purpose. The owner of the table determines its purpose. The Lord has built a perfect table. You see it here and here. He's built a perfect table for imperfect people like me and you, for sinners and prodigals, for the sick that need a doctor, for folks like you and me, imperfect people. He has built a perfect table, and he will invite whoever he will to his table. That's what we see in this passage is Jesus is opening up his table through Peter to Cornelius, and all those that Cornelius has assembled in his house. We know from the previous passage that Cornelius had invited all of his friends, uh, relatives to his home to hear from, uh, from Peter, who God was sending to Cornelius, Cornelius was in Caesarea. He was a centurion, which means he would have been over. He was a Roman soldier, would have been over another hundred Roman soldiers. Uh, What we know of of this centurion was that he probably only had about eighty soldiers that were stationed there with him in Caesarea. We know that from other um, historical documents. He would have been very wealthy. Uh, He would have um, been paid about fifteen times more than the average Roman soldier because he was a centurion and he gave a lot of that away people knew him as a man that was very generous a very merciful guy and a guy that worshiped God but he wasn't he wasn't a follower of Jesus yet and he was on the outside looking in because he was a Roman he wasn't allowed into the temple he wasn't a Jew he was a Gentile But he had gathered all of these people to come hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Peter shows up with that gospel and begins to speak to them, but does so differently than he's done before. In other places where Peter has opened up the gospel, for example, in Jerusalem at Pentecost or later in Samaria, he goes from the Old Testament showing them what the Old Testament had to say about the Messiah and then bringing it forward and and basically says, see, Jesus is that one that all the Old Testament prophets spoke about. He doesn't do that here. Here he starts straight from Jesus Christ and assumes that they already know much of these things. He, he begins with, as, as you know, um, as, as truly, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. And then in verse 37, you yourselves know. And then in verse 39, we are witnesses. He, he says, look, I'm going to summarize all this. You know this, you know this, you know this. Now let's get to the, to the guts of the whole thing. Uh, you know these things. He reminds them, you know, I know, we all know that God shows no partiality. Peter has brought six other friends with him from the church in Jerusalem and from the church in Joppa. He's brought six Jewish friends, Jewish Christian friends with him. They're surprised by much of what they're hearing and what they're going to see when baptisms begin to happen in a little while. Peter's reminding them God shows no partiality but it's for every nation paul says i'm not ashamed of the gospel of jesus christ for it is the power of god for who for the jew and also for the gentile god shows no partiality but it's for every nation there was surprise and there was even opposition for peter when he would get back to jerusalem but nathan's going to talk about that next week no one spoil that for you the jews like to build up walls and keep the gentiles out uh, keep anyone that was a non-Jew out. They had their feasts. They had uh, the circumcision. Uh, and it was in their minds, and we'll see this later on in when we get to Acts 15, that unless someone was going to keep all of the feast and was going to be circumcised, then they shouldn't be allowed to come to Christ, for Christ was a Jewish Messiah. They should be on the outside looking in, unless they did all the, the things that the Jews Wanted them to do. Yet in Matthew chapter twenty-seven, verse fifty-one, we see Jesus, after he has been crucified, he has torn the veil in two. The veil in the temple kept people from the holy of holies. They weren't allowed to be where God was. As Jesus was crucified, as he died, the the veil was ripped in two. There is no longer any curtain, any wall between us. And Jesus Christ, we're not much different from the Jews, who like to build walls up, but they're typically walls that Jesus has not designed. Jesus would tear down all of the walls except one. The only wall that He keeps up is the wall that is between believers and unbelievers, when it comes to their place in heaven. That's it. Paul reminds us there's now the Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. There's only people that are believers and people that are unbelievers. And Jesus also tells us that it is not, will that, not God's will that anyone should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. So he, he has come to seek and to save those that are lost. He is inviting those that are not, not believers yet into that family of God that they would be believers. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. So Jesus keeps that up. He sees two classes, those that know him and those that no, don't know him. We like to keep other walls up. We tear down walls that we want torn down. Uh, I not only really like to, um, to, to build furniture, I like to rebuild houses. And one of the most fun things about rebuilding a house is the demo. Demo day, you ever seen some of these HGTV things? Demo day is the funnest day because you get to come in with sledgehammers and you get to just tear stuff apart. We bought a house that we were stripping down to the studs. We were tearing up, down a lot of walls, uh, opening up walls between the kitchen and the dining room the master bedroom had been chopped up into two bedrooms and, I think, four closets. It was a, an atrocity. Um, and so, you know, all those walls had to come down. Well, demo day arrived, and my buddy Robbie showed up with 18 other men from church. It was a beautiful sight. It was like something on, from, from TV where you see all these, these cars and trucks pulling up into the driveway. And men began to come into the house with, with tool bags and hammers and sledgehammers and saws. And it was an exciting thing until I saw a couple of guys that, well, it scared me to think of them with a hammer in their hand. Uh, one of those guys was in the kitchen later on, and uh, I heard banging. And I thought, there isn't a wall that's supposed to come down in the kitchen. What's going on in there? And I walk around the, down the hall and into the kitchen, and sure enough, there was a wall there that was almost totally destroyed and he was having the time of his life it would have been funny except that was a load bearing wall that held up the beam that held up much of the upstairs and so there was a real quick George stop don't tear that wall down tear that wall down we pick and choose the walls that we want torn down even when it comes to the church and yet the church doesn't belong to us The church belongs to Jesus Christ. The table is his and the church is his. My friends, let's let's make it personal. Even this church is his. Yeah, many of of us in this room are members of the church, of EP church, but EP church doesn't belong to us. Certainly doesn't belong to me. And, And it doesn't belong to you. Even EP church belongs to Jesus Christ. It belongs to him. And he can tear down all the walls he wants to because he's the owner of the church. We build up walls and God thankfully tears them down. We build up walls that we like, walls that, that are, well, they're part of the culture in which we grew up, maybe. Maybe they're a part of the culture that we've adopted since we've become believers or since we've become adults. We put up walls around race, we put up walls around language. We put up walls around clothing. We put up walls around ages. We put up walls around the way people educate their kids. We put up walls around music. We put up walls around nationality. We put up walls, we put up walls, we put up walls. My friends, where we've put up walls that do not belong to Jesus Christ, we need to repent we need to repent and ask forgiveness from the Father. For we have put up walls and divided people that belong to his one church, for every tribe, tongue, and nation. Those walls come down eventually. Let's tear them down now. We put up walls, God tears those walls down. Peter reminds Cornelius and those that are behind him those that are behind him, the Jews that have come, Jewish Christians that have come with him, he reminds them that God owns it all. The table belongs to him. The church belongs to him. Look in verse 38. Verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. You know that Jesus of Nazareth is the one that is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He goes on. He so said, we've all seen what he did. We've seen the peace that he proclaimed, the peace that he brought. We've seen what the Jews did to him, which I find that fascinating that he's talking to the, the Romans here, the Roman Gentiles. And he's saying, you saw what the Jews did to him. They hung him on a tree. But God, but God, God raised him from the dead the third day. We saw that. Now, to be a witness of something was, was an important thing. Um, but to have two or more witnesses and he's got remember he's got six people with him to have two or more witnesses was enough to stand up in court so when Peter's telling these this centurion and all those that are gathered with him we saw that all of us what he's saying is you can check it out you can depend on this and if you don't trust us check it out we saw what happened in other words they're willing to stand on on that you go to First Corinthians chapter 15, and you see Paul saying the same kind of thing, that all of these psalms, the 12, Peter, John, more than 500 of the brothers at one time. He says you can check it out. You can go to all these other cities and these, these villages and these coastal places. You can check it out and see that we, what we're saying is true. He is the anointed one. He has been raised from the dead. And then he goes on. He said, and we've been told by God that we're to come and tell you these things. Look at verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. He is the one appointed by God to be the judge. So think about what, what's going through the centurion's mind and maybe all those that are with him. They are Roman citizens. They owe their allegiance to one, and his name is Caesar. His name is not Jesus. Caesar is the final judge over Rome and all Roman citizens. In fact, in their mind, Caesar is the final judge over everybody. But they're saying, no, not even Caesar, not even our government ju- is the judge appointed by God. The one appointed by God, his name is Jesus. And with that, he has put Caesar out of the way completely. He's not the anointed one, the Messiah sent by God, and he's not the judge. There is only one, and his name, is, his name is Jesus. In verse 43, he says, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins Through his name. So he says, this is the only time he goes back to the Old Testament. He says, even the prophets, the prophets of old, the Old Testament, they bear witness that this is the one. And here's the gospel message. Cornelius and all that are gathered with him, all of you that believe on his name, you've got eternal life. You've got your sins are forgiven. They're done away with. No more offerings to foreign gods. No more offerings to Caesar. No no longer hoping that you'll be good enough. If you believe in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And at that moment, everything changes because the Holy Spirit falls on the people that are gathered there. All of those that heard, believed. Verse 44, Peter was still saying these things. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Now, all of those that heard believe, right? The scripture says in Romans 8, 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's a shame that comes for those that are not believers, that don't yet know Jesus Christ. If you're a Jew that's that's under the, the rule and the yoke of slavery with Pharisees, then that shame comes because you'll never be good enough. You'll never be able to keep the laws that have been heaped upon you again and again and again and piled heavily on you because of the Pharisees. If you're a Roman citizen, there's the shame of knowing you will never measure up because you'll never be Caesar. There's always a place where you fall short of being that one that has wisdom and understanding and knowledge. You'll always fall short of that. For all that are, that, are, that are created in the image of God, there's still the even deeper shame of knowing that because of sin, even one sin, even our own sin nature, we're separated from God. But God who is rich in mercy made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the children of God Christ has taken our shame everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame Romans 8:11 for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches bestowing his riches on all who call on him for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved Jew and Gentile male and female slave and free everyone who calls on the name of the lord and the holy spirit fell people began to speak in tongues and extol the name of the lord now we've seen this happen in acts already we saw it happen at pentecost in acts chapter 2 where the holy spirit fell on all those that were gathered there uh, for pentecost right peter was preaching then we see it again in acts chapter 4 where the holy spirit falls on the samaritans as peter is preaching the gospel there At this point, the gospel is going forth again, and the Holy Spirit is marking that by falling on the people. They're proclaiming the name of the Lord, and they're speaking in tongues. It's interesting here that at this point, just as in other places, there's there's baptism that's going to take place. Peter asked the question. It was probably a catechism-type question that was asked before baptisms in verse 47. He said, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? It was probably a catechism type normal question is what theologians and historians believe. But there's something powerful in the question itself. Can anyone come up with a reason why these should not have, why these should not be baptized? And those that were behind him, the six Jewish Christians that have come with him, they can probably think of lots of reasons they haven't kept the feast They haven't been circumcised. They haven't been admitted to the temple. I can think of lots of reasons they're probably saying. But nobody says a word because they've seen the Holy Spirit fall on these Gentile believers. Peter has to defend that in chapter 11 in Jerusalem. It happens again in Acts chapter 15. Baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, and God has ushered these into the covenant of grace. Was it necessary that they be circumcised first? Absolutely not. Circumcision was an Old Testament sacrament, as was Passover. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are the New Testament equivalents of that. Go to um, Colossians chapter two, if you will. In verse 11, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, a circumcision of the heart. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament circumcision. The Lord's Supper, which Jesus said, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me, is a New Testament sacrament that is equivalent of the Old Testament Passover. Think about the Old Testament sacraments. The the, the Passover and circumcision. Both pointed forward towards Jesus Christ. Both pointed forward. And both were were bloody. Both were bloody. The New Testament... With baptism and the Lord's Supper, there is no blood. There's no blood. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 21, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood, sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in, in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What's the better sacrifice? That would be Jesus. For Christ has entered not, on, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood that is not his own. But then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. There's no blood in the New Testament sacraments because the blood's already been shed. The blood of Jesus Christ has been shed once for all. And if that's not enough, then nothing else is. Nothing else is. So there, there's, there's a baptism for these Gentile believers, a baptism that does not depend on them keeping the feast, that does not depend on them being circumcised. It depends on their faith in Christ and Christ alone. So who was baptized? We know that, that Cornelius and his household, all those that, that were there were baptized. That would, have been, that would have included his family, his relatives. It would have included uh, um, adult believers. It would have included Uh, adolescent believers it would have included children it would have included infants it would have included all those that were with him that were his soldiers or others that had gathered together both them and their families and their children we see for example over in Acts in chapter 16 in Acts 16 we see the um the Philippian jailer Verse thirty one, and they said, "Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household." And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So, uh, just as circumcision was given in the Old Testament to those that were eight days old, so baptism in the New Testament is as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace. It is not a sign and a seal that you believed. It is a sign and seal of the covenant that God has acted on your behalf. Both baptism and circumcision share this. The the one that is receiving those is passive in the doing of it. They are being baptized or being circumcised. They are passive in that. It is the Lord that is active through the one that he has appointed, ordained for that task. So the, the, there's infants that are baptized. There are adults that are baptized there in this place uh, in, in Caesarea. Listen, if you, um, if you haven't been baptized, I want to encourage you to, to take that up. It is a natural part. It is a natural part of the church of Jesus Christ. It is a natural part. If you're a believer and haven't been baptized, I encourage you to be baptized. Because it's a natural outworking of faith in Jesus Christ. You have the covenant of grace. If you have children and you're a believer that have not been baptized, I encourage you to call Nathan Boyette or send him an email in boyette at epanapolis.org uh, and, and, and schedule that with him and, and get that underway. It is a natural part of the narrative of the Christian life. Baptism does not make you a Christian, but it is a sign and seal of the covenant. Of grace, and you see it followed through with every single time we see someone become a believer in this place. I've gotten to do a lot of, of beautiful baptisms over the years. Uh, probably the two most beautiful would have been my, my children, Abby and Isaac. I didn't baptize the, the, the older ones, uh, my pastor did that. But I baptized Abby and Isaac, and I will never forget that. Um, one of the, the more recent baptisms I did was, uh, was also memorable. I will never forget it. It was um, the baptism of Nell and Ezra. Nell was 74 years old. Um, she was a, a white woman from the deep south. And, and she had white hair and a smile that would just, it went from ear to ear. Uh, she was a sweet, sweet, sweet lady. But she had just become a believer in Jesus at 74. And, and she, was, she wanted to be baptized. And she was, it was such a special thing for her, as it should be, that she went out and had her hair done, you know. And, um, and she comes in that morning, and her hair is just perfect and sweet. Nell Nell was probably about 5'2", five, 5'3". Five, uh, um, but there was so much hairspray on her hair that when I baptized her, it just ran out all over the place. <laughs> right next to, to Nell uh, were, was Ezra. Ezra was about nine months old. And he had just arrived from Ethiopia. He had just been adopted. Uh, Ezra was the polar opposite of Nell, whereas Nell had this this lily white skin. um, Ezra's skin was just as black as it could be. Uh, He had he had two older sisters. Uh, one was white one was biracial and they both decided we want someone that's darker than us And so the parents said, that's what they said that's what they said and so the parents said well, let's go to ethiopia we'll, we'll, and so they went through that process and they adopted brought ezra home and, and ezra fit the bill he had these eyes that would, that would light up the night he had a smile this little grin a little toothless grin it was so beautiful to see ezzy was one of my favorite kids ever Ezzy's his head was just as, as slick as it could be. He had no hair yet. And so when I, when I took Ezra uh, in my arms and I baptized him, just like now, the water just ran off his face and right down into, uh, ran off his head and right down into his face and looked at me like, what are you doing to me, you fool? What a beautiful scene, though. We've got this, this infant, this nine-month-old infant, uh, new to the States, with this dark, dark skin being baptized as a sign and seal of the cutter of grace. And we've got this 74-year-old white woman from the deep south and everything that that implies being baptized at the same time. A new believer and another young, young, young child, infant. Baptism is a part of the narrative of God's covenant with his people. If you haven't taken part in that narrative, I encourage you to do so. Is that from me? Well, that's from Scripture. It's what happens. It's part of God's narrative. He's made the table, and because he's made the table, he can determine, he can determine how, who comes to it and how they come to it. The table belongs to the Lord. God created the table, and God created you. You can't come to the table without an invitation. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to the Father unless the Father draw him, unless the Father invite him unless the father woo him no one can come to the table unless the father draw him no one can sit at the table unless Jesus has paid for their sins unless Jesus has wiped the mud from their eyes and the beautiful thing is that once you're seated at that that, that table no one can pull you away from it no one can pull you away from it Jesus says in fact in John 6 that no one can snatch you out of my father's hand no one can snatch you out of my hand No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And those that the Father draws, I will never cast out. The table belongs to the Lord, and he will invite who he will. Once you're at that table, you are his, and nothing can take you away from that. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 to 30, talks a little bit more about that. Who's seated at the table with the Lord? Well, I think we'll be surprised by who's seated at the table of the Lord. Romans 8 and verse 14 or in verse verse 13 everyone who calls on the name of the Lord everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved everybody Jew and Greek male and female slave and free everyone who calls who's at the table I think there will be some some surprises when we get to heaven there will be people that will be surprised for example that I'm in heaven you know, that's reality. There will be, be people that are surprised that you're in heaven too. We'll be surprised at some of the people we see in heaven. There, you know, there will be people in groups that, in um, any group, really, there will be people that think, you know, God is lucky to have me on his team. In fact, I put in an application to be the fourth person of the Trinity. God's excited to have me. Maybe, maybe they think, maybe you think, why would God not want me on his team? I am the most merciful individual. I am the wisest. I am the smartest. God needs me. Of course he would have me on his team because of how good I am. As long as I'm in the top half of, of the uh, You know of the people of the world or the top one third of the people of the world because of my goodness that i'm in and it's winter winter chicken dinner there's also those though that think there's no way that i will ever see heaven there's no way there's no way i'll ever be good enough i've been told all my life i'm not good enough i look at the people all around me and i see how very good they are how smart they are how beautiful they are how wealthy they are how many friends they have, and I know that I will never measure up to them. There's no way that I will ever see heaven. There's no way that the Father will ever love me. No one else does. Why would he? There's no way I could ever break down those walls and enter into heaven. I can't even enter into the church of Jesus Christ here on earth. My friends in any group, there's those individuals. it's probably those individuals right here in this room. I've been one of those individuals in both of those groups at different times in my life. The Lord's lucky to have me on his team. And at the same time, there's no way on earth I'll ever see heaven. Why would God love somebody like me? Because in both of those places, it's all up to me, isn't it? The reality is that who's at the table isn't up to you and it isn't up to me, it's up to God. And God will invite who he will invite. The measuring stick you see is all wrong. We measure according to man's rules, We measure according to our idols. We measure according to our own fears. God measures according to something else. He's measured with the blood of Jesus Christ, that blood that was shed once for the remission of sins. If the blood of Jesus Christ is not enough, friends, then nothing else is. Nothing else is. And if the blood of Jesus Christ is enough, then anything that you or I try to add to it is an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is shaking our hand in his face. And like the song from The Greatest Showman sung by Jenny Lind, it's never enough. Jesus, you're never enough. You're never enough. Never, never, never enough. Let me add my good works. Let me add doing it right. Let me add singing the right songs. Let me add hanging out to the right, with the right people. Let me add doing it right. Then that'll be enough for me, for me, and for everyone else. My friends, Jesus Christ doesn't build those walls. He tears them down. It is not for us to look at the prodigals and the sinners, the Gentiles and the Jews and other people from other parts of the world and say those people do not belong. This table is for those that are sinners and prodigals just like me, just like you. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ shed for once, for many for the remission of sins. The surprises happen here as we give into God and his ownership of the table. My friends, God has created, he has built, he has designed a perfect table for imperfect people like me and you. A perfect table for imperfect people like us. The creator of his table in his love and his mercy, he has given it to us on this day. So when we come to this table uh, in a few minutes, we're gonna come as imperfect people forgiven by the King of Kings. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your table, thank you for your love, thank you for tearing down the walls, the dividing walls between us and you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that like Cornelius and his household, that like Peter, and his household. Lord, that we will rejoice with you. Father, I pray that as you use Peter to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to to Cornelius and to his house, that you would use us to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ even beyond this. Father, I pray for all of us in this room, if there's anyone here, Lord, that is thinking uh, hey, I'm enough. I don't need Jesus. I'm good enough. Or maybe thinking that um, I'll never be enough. There's no way Jesus will ever let me come to the table. Lord, I pray that you would open those hearts and that you would draw them, Jesus, draw them to the table of the Lord that they too might know the hope and the joy of heaven, the intense joy of having a seat at the table next to Jesus, the one, the Messiah, the Christ, our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.